policy is hard. There's your <laughs> Horace policy is hard. Who I knew mean, it could be this hard? <laughs> Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup, the inimitable Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, as always, wonderful to see you. Good morning. Good morning to you, Ron. Happy to be with you. Also returning to the roundup is Eric Cook. Eric is the founder of Downfield, a boutique communications firm and former communications director for New York City Council Speaker Melissa Mark Viverito. Eric, it's so good to see you again. Welcome back. Good to see you again, too. And joining us for the first segment today is the one and only Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent, excellent newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, great to see you again. Welcome back. Thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me on. On this week's Roundup, first, the success of Ukraine's counteroffensive this week and how we can prepare for a possible Ukrainian victory. Next up, the midterms are tightening. We'll discuss how the drop in gas prices has altered the midterm battlefield and where we expect it to go next. Then we'll discuss the New York Times story about Hasidic yeshivas that haven't provided adequate education. And finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, in the days following the 2020 election, Trump vowed not to leave the White House. We're going to talk about that bombshell from Maggie Haberman's forthcoming book and whether journalists should be holding on to news stories for their book deals. If you want to join us for that and a lot more, Politicology Plus is where you can get our private ad-free version of the podcast, plus additional strategy and analysis not available anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll get rolling right after this. Over the last two weeks, Ukrainian forces have been able to push through Russian lines to liberate towns in occupied territories. They've recaptured hundreds of square miles of territory in more than 20 towns and liberated around 150,000 people from Russian occupation. Ukrainian officials estimate that 1.2 million people are still living under Russian control. There's 300,000 in the Donbass alone. Molly, There's a a recent piece Ann Applebaum wrote uh, in The Atlantic that was published uh, online Sunday saying that essentially it's time to prepare for a possible Ukrainian victory. And I wonder if you can help us understand what's going on, how significant it is that Ukraine has had these victories. And are we at that point yet? Should we be considering that possibility? And what does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, there's many layers of this, as your question, uh, your, as your question indicates. But I think the answer is yes, and I think from the beginning, uh, some of us have been talking about this. That just what we've seen from Ukraine in terms of in terms of operational design and tactics indicated a broader strategic plan than uh, anybody was sort of thinking uh, they would have the capability to put together and enact. Um, And given what they're up against, uh, it seemed very likely that if they were properly armed, which thus far has been the challenge, um, that they can absolutely defeat the Russians. And that's what we should all be focused on, is dealing as decisive a defeat as possible to the Russian forces 
Um, I think at this point where we are um, is Ukraine has the capability to get Russian forces out of the entirety of their sovereign territory to the 2014 borders. So getting rid of uh, Russian forces in Crimea as well. And they have very much made clear this is the current uh, sort of overall plan for the execution of this war. Um, and that, uh, given what we've seen this week, which is they have the military capability to do what they have been telling us they can do all this time, um, and the Russian forces are even weaker and still not reinforced, and that there's signs that there's uh, more churn within Russia than we've seen in a long time. Um, it's sort of the layers of, are we ready for Ukrainian victory? Meaning, are we ready for all the things that means for Ukraine and for ourselves? Like, this will not be another three weeks. This is uh, a- another commitment of more serious weaponry that we have been holding back um, from Ukraine uh, that we need to commit to them if they are going to complete their offensives in Crimea. Um, and on the Russian side, uh, and you've seen a lot of discussion about this uh, from people like General Ben Hodges, um, from others, but we don't have, and by we, I mean the great we, the Western we, the everybody who is not Russia or, Uqu- or Ukraine we, we don't have the plan for like, what happens with the destabilizing Russia. People have been warning us about this since like 2010. Like we really need to think about what destabilizing Russia could look like and what our options would be. Um, But the problem is people look at this vast chasm in which there is no real credible opposition that has any real uh, ability to stand up any sort of functional thing anytime soon. Uh, There's no one with a plan to unravel the massive security services that control everything in the country. Uh, You know, there's nobody with, in Russia, there's no native actors that have the ability to challenge the system that is currently there. Um, So you know what the intelligence discussions end up looking like is like, well, the best thing, quote unquote, best thing, would just be somebody less stinky than Putin taking the chair and slowly guiding change, but with a better relationship with us, right? And this is essentially what you saw in the quote-unquote reset, where Medvedev pretended to be the different guy who was more moderate, who was going to take the chair and steer Russia in a different direction, but it was all just a giant deception for for four years. Um, And we're still looking for that now. And if you look at all the, the information space is just chaos right now. And if you look at it, what you're seeing is... Everyone, whether it be tank experts on Twitter or, you know, people who are really into the humanitarian side or the policy side or whatever, everybody is projecting their deep-seated hopes and dreams that there will be a quick end to this war and a quick end to Putin that requires absolutely no change in policy or action from us because we don't have that cha- that plan or, or thing. Um, like, oh, it would be really nice if some general just shot Putin in the head. Like, yeah, sure, but, like, we can't really hope that that's going to be... The outcome here, uh, when we have no plan for the next Russia, and by that I mean either dealing with whatever happens or trying to instill those changes ourselves. As I've mentioned uh, you know, earlier in the war, I think the Ukrainians have a lot of planning on that, actually, and we should probably be talking to them about it. But when it comes to the are we ready for Ukrainian victory, we're not ready for it for Ukraine. We're not ready for it when it comes to Russia. And we're not ready for it for ourselves and what it's going to mean for our alliances um, and in, within Europe. 
in terms of trade and integration and security and defense. Like we're not ready on any level for those things in the way that we think that we are. And that reluctance will hold back on what we are doing with Ukraine, which could be a real tragedy. You know, I'm working, I'm doing some work in Eastern Europe right now in uh, Moldova, Romania, Poland, and I worked on the Hungarian election a few months ago. And yeah, the, 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 the notion that any of these countries sort of bordering Russia are, are ready for what, uh, uh, not only a victory looks like, but a potential end to the regime, you know, knock on wood, I guess, uh, you know, nobody is, and nobody knows what it's going to entail. Um, you know, when I was working on the Hungarian election, Viktor Orban was very much playing footsie with Vladimir Putin, you know, as, as late as, you know, this spring. And he was oftentimes the very last guy to, uh, very last leader rather to get on board, um, with sanctioned regimes, with everything. Um, and for a long time, I don't know, and I believe Hungary still isn't allowing lethal aid, um, to come through their country. But, you know, one of the things that we're seeing in this, in this, uh, the last few days is, is really, you know, Russia tried to do a whole lot in February and March with not a lot. Um, they, they put, you know, Molly, you might have the, the numbers better than me, but they put about 250,000, uh, folks into the field in Ukraine. Um, you know, it sounds like a lot to, you know, the, the layperson, but to cover a country, the size of Ukraine to actually hold the towns that they were trying to hold and to actually, you know, storm into the capital like they tried to do while also, you know, coming up through the South and sort of holding the line in the Donbass. Um, it was all, they were, they were asking a whole lot of their, of their military. And over the course of those, you know, 10 weeks, um, they were pretty severely degraded. And then they moved, you know, a lot of those forces into the Donbass, tried again to sort of hack away at uh, Eastern and Southeastern Ukraine without a lot of success. Um, and so, you know, it, it's in over time, it was sort of inevitable that Ukraine was going to get stronger with more aid, with a, a full mobilization, right? Russia hasn't fully mobilized yet because they have, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of political problems that they'd have if they had to do a full, you know, mobilization, full conscription, things like that. Um, so over time, Ukraine has gotten stronger, uh, both in 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 combat abilities, material, um, we're seeing uh, levels of of, of intelligence, um, whether it's you know real time battlefield stuff or you know Lord knows what we have in in Moscow, um, you know. But the Western intelligence services have put on uh, an absolute clinic in terms of you know knowing what's going on before things are happening, and I have to assume that you know we're probably still providing real-time battlefield intelligence to the Ukrainian military at a time when, you know, we're seeing videos of Russian, you know, uh, Russian uh, fighter bombers uh, who are flying six, seven sorties a day. Uh, you know, there's a video the other day that was very telling of just, you know, it was a two-wing formation taking off and uh, one of the Ukrainian, uh, one of the Russian planes sort of veers to the left, stalls and crashes. That It didn't look like it was a... Um, it didn't look like it was a, a, a mechanical error. Um, it looked like the, the just probably fatigue, plane tilted to the left and just crashed into the woods. Um, this is a military that has, you know, severe, been severely degraded. And, you know, the Russian, I'm sorry, the Ukrainian deception of telegraphing south, 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 we're going south, we're going south. And everyone's saying, OK, we're, 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 we're going on the highway to Odessa. Um, and then, you know, just this sort of like faint and then this right hook. Uh, around Kharkov is um, 
was is remarkable. It's the kind of military operation we haven't seen in that scale, you know, probably since, you know, probably since World War II. Um, and, you know, what they've been able to accomplish, um, just an absolute rout of those forces is, is, is really remarkable. You got at this uh, earlier, Molly, but the central idea of, of Anne's piece is that if Ukraine does win the war, right, reclaim their territory and have some kind of restitution, um, that it would undercut Putin's main argument for why he should be in power, that, that he can put the Soviet Union back together. And earlier this week, we saw uh, municipal deputies from 18 councils in Moscow and St. Petersburg sign a petition calling for Putin to resign. And this is a week after a municipal council in St. Petersburg called the State Duma uh, to investigate Putin for treason over the decision to invade Ukraine. And um, and now we're seeing people just uh, die of uh, all kinds of different causes. Um, and so I wonder, you know, you mentioned this, there, there, there could be a power vacuum, right? There's, we, I'd like to understand what are the kinds of uncertainty that we are not prepared for in a destabilizing Russia, whether or not Putin remains in power, what are the what what are the what are the things that we're not prepared for, and what should the West have our eyes on? What should what should people be thinking about? How does this how does this upend the power dynamic? Maybe both of you have thoughts, but Molly. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would just caution on is you know I I, I think there's been a lot of micro analyzing of things that we think may be happening in Russia. There's also been a tremendous effort uh, to promote not true information on a number of things online. Like there's constant rumors that like Moscow is under siege and it's the city's closed off. Like none of that's happening. Um, so I just I would just put like a little bit of caution on all of this, which is to remind that Russia, Putin's Russia is a permanently chaotic, extremely resilient, even though fragile system. And uh, when we see things like a general on TV saying that we haven't done the war the right way, the way we interpret that is through a very Western lens and it may not be what it's actually for. And so like some of the stuff we're seeing, it doesn't mean there's a groundswell against Putin. There were just municipal elections in Russia and it was like the vastly overwhelming vote, of course, for the United Russia Party again. Um, there isn't like a big uprising happening in Russia right now because of the war. And part of that has been because they don't call it a war and they haven't talked about the war. And like, you know, it's just the accountability has not yet come. There will need to be within the system uh, some accountability at some point. The question will always be at what level? Is it the generals that you throw under the bus? Is it somebody else? Is it Putin himself? How does that process happen? Um, but I just think... Wishing for an easy solution in which we need to do nothing for an outcome is going to blind how we are looking at this whole thing. So I just want to issue that caution. And we need to not project our hopes of a new, better Russia emerging from this process, which I don't think will happen even when there's transition um, happening anytime soon. Um, I think there is some of these petitions are interesting uh, the willingness of a few people to stick their heads up and sort of say what is obvious is interesting. I think the question is sort of, and then what happens? Um, it, it seems like today there was some, you know, some of those people were arrested, some of those people were thrown out of their seats, uh, which I think is the, the standard we would have expected to see right now. Um, it doesn't seem to be leading a bigger, uh, you know, cascade of arguments at the moment. Um 
the assassinations, which is the only thing we can call them, are... It, again, it's hard to know if it's the spiders in the jar dynamic or if it's uh, very intentional things. There's clearly shifts, particularly looking at the energy sector and control of financial flows and resources in Russia, which I think is primarily what that's about. Uh, attempts to get loyalists of whatever faction into those uh, roles, uh, which are going to be extremely critical in the, in the next period, no matter who is in charge. Um, there's a lot of this stuff happening, but in terms of what it yields... What we need to understand and focus on is none of it is a different Russia for us. It is still the same Russia with the same goals and ambitions, with the same major factions vying for dominance. Um, and that doesn't change uh, what we need to be focused on right now. There's an element of this that I think has to do with how the West uh, writ large orients itself around repressive regimes. I'm by no means a Russia expert, but I do... Um, I am involved in organizations that work with political dissidents in <laughs> authoritarian countries. And one of the things that that community really struggles with, these are people, you know, like whose names you've heard of, right? These are kind of like people cut from the Navalny cloth, people like Leopoldo Lopez from Venezuela, people who have really been, I mean, if if they haven't been killed, right, just sort of brutally subjected to brutal treatment from authoritarian um, leaders in these countries and and maybe have have gotten out, although, of course, they all always want to go back in because they're highly patriotic. But something that's really struck me in working with that community of people is this sense that it will never get better for as long as the West attitude is simply to kind of cut those countries off. And they understand why that happens. But it means that you're never lifting the voices of the dissidents in those countries, right? Not that they want to see normalized relations between you know, authoritarian regimes and the West, but that if there is not a commitment from Western actors to actually um, uh, get into conversation in sort of traditionally diplomatic means with the dissonance in those countries and elevate their voices, there's always this attitude of like, okay, Russia, bad, right? Cut off Russia, right? Venezuela, bad, cut off Venezuela, that you you can't get that groundswell that would make it possible for the kind of regime change that is is meaningful. And I think that's what leads to that power vacuum that Molly's alluding to and ultimately, that's a problem. Russia's our biggest challenge right now in that way. But it's a, a problem that we can see in authoritarian regimes throughout the world. So there is, I believe, a zoom out here about what happens after this war is over in terms of how there probably really will not be long-term consequences for Russia. That is a lesson that is very applicable in many places throughout the world. And the West has been whiskashing about Russia for... Yeah hundreds of years now. Um, and, you know, we as uh, 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 the United States government and our allies and friends, um, you know, we have to be very sort of, you know, careful about how we uh, think about these things, how we approach these things. Um, and also, you know, understanding that this is a, a, a repressive society where, you know, dissidents are, uh, you know, disappeared, thrown out of windows, have heart attacks and, you know, you know, Lord knows what else. Um, that's very difficult. 
um, you know, to, to know what, just what exactly is sort of going on in, in the guts of the place. Um, and I think we're, you know, it's going to be one of those situations where, you know, we probably don't know uh, sort of until it becomes, you know, be, until it becomes more obvious. Um, that said, you know, Western intelligence within, uh, you know, clearly within the, the Russian apparatus is, is clearly pretty good. Um, you know, we were, we were basically, uh, uh, forecasting, you know, who, where, and when, um, in this war, uh, you know, before it was happening. Um, so, you know, I am, that is one thing I'm definitely sort of tracking and keeping an eye on is, you know, just what the, especially the intelligence services in Eastern Europe, um, are saying, especially in the Baltic and Poland. Yeah, I would just two-finger that and say not to overestimate what we actually have visibility on in Russia. Uh, we get a lot from our allies, which is really important. Um, but I st- we've talked about this before on this pod, so we don't need to go back into it right now. But I think there's uh, there's a different story about why we knew what was going to happen in uh, in the war before it started. Um, I think the Ukrainians have uh, deserved the bulk of, uh, of credit in what we see and what is happening. And if nothing else, a key thing that we should always have a takeaway on right now is, yeah, we may give them some intelligence, but they're the ones who are actually doing the things with it. And we don't do the things with it. And that's still where we are in our policy and our stuff. Um, And uh, I slightly disagree with with Lucy on some of the isolationist uh, or how you isolate Russia, how you how you force change within the system, uh, only because it's such a difficult environment to work in. And for the most part, any of the Credible dissident movements don't want exposure to the West because of the environment Putin has built. But um, it's a, it's not a conversation worth arguing about right now because we all agree about the fact that the West should be trying to find better people and amplify their voices and encourage the right things. Um, it's just what's coming is really, really complicated. Um, and, it, it, and not just because Russia is complicated, but because it's layers and layers of negotiations with our allies, dealing with incredibly difficult dynamics, which have already, you know, sort of shown their heads at various phases during the most recent round of this war. Um, You know, Europe's having really hard conversations with itself about its pending energy crisis this winter, Germany being foremost among those. And it's like, well, you did it to yourselves because you turned off your nuclear power plants and put yourselves totally in the basket of Russian gas. But like, no one wants to say that to them. Um, there's a lot coming that's really complex. We are the furthest from it and feel the impact of any of it the least. Um, it, I mean, in, in Estonia, in the Baltics, um, who are much more impacted by the sanctions, um, by the inflation, by some of these uh, uh, economic upheavals in the region, um, you know, inflation's at like 25, 30%. And we're not, you know, we're like whining about paying 50 cents more for flour or whatever it is. But um, this is a it's, a, it's a really complex set of things that needs to happen. I think we need to listen closely to the frontline partners while we go through this. I think Ukraine needs to have a special voice in this if we actually want them in our alliances when the conflict is done, which we should absolutely want. Um, uh, but Ukraine has made clear they have a special role in what comes next, and they've earned that, and we need to be able to respect that. And right now, I'm not sure people really understand. Like, we're never going back to the, like, 2012, oh, but Ukraine, you have to deal with your corruption before we take you seriously narrative. Like, we're done with that. Like, there's a different situation that we're we're dealing with now. 
Um, and there's just no deep thinking about it because it's everybody's so busy patting themselves on the back about the munitions logistics and great because those are necessary. Um, but that is not enough. Uh, and that's kind of still where we are in this whole process. And, and that's a great point about the, about what's coming this winter, um, with, you know, the energy, um, and with, you know, heating and things like that, it's going to be a, it's going to be a very difficult, you know, winter in Europe, you know, the kind of likes we, you know, maybe haven't seen since, you know, for, for, for decades. Um, and that is going to really stress and strain, um, how everyone thinks about this, because to this point, you know, inflation and these other things are obviously very high. Um, but when everyone starts to sort of feel a little cold, um, you know, when it, the temperature dips a little bit or when your heating bill is, uh, you know, four time friends in Germany who are already sort of girding for a, a heating bill that's going to be three, four or five times, you know, what it normally is, um, you know, people are really going to feel it. And that's when it's going to be incumbent on governments and, you know, everybody to sort of um, you know, it's easy for me to say in New York, but, you know, for to sort of pull together and, you know, explain why we're doing this and, and all that other stuff. I have one last question to round this out and bring it back to uh, here and now in our, you know, the, the state of the Republican Party. Lucy, I wonder what you think a possible Ukrainian victory, right, in a, in a, in a sort of humiliated Russia does to the you know the 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 ecosystem of the right wing sort of support for Putin support for Russia what do they do with that when Ukraine emerges victorious obviously it's going to be complicated and there's a whole lot of messy things happening but when Putin is defeated whatever defeat looks like how does that how does that impact what's happening on the in the trump wing of the of the republican party well they will sidestep any um any history of being critical of Ukraine and they will all suddenly hold up Zelensky as a, a you know, they'll so. all be in favor of Ukraine all of a sudden. Huh. Yeah. Or maybe not, but that's one, that's one outcome. Also, you know, I don't think that Putin is nearly as, cr they have other figures, right? We talked about Viktor Orban earlier. They're tight with Viktor Orban. He's, you know, headlining CPAC every other day now. So I don't, I don't think it's going to have, maybe this is my cynicism, but I don't think it's going to have much of a downstream effect. They have proven exceptionally good at contorting themselves to um, re recalibrate uh, through, through many sea changes, much more intense and, and much closer to home than this one. Molly, thank you for being here. Um, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Sorry for, for jumping soon. All good. On Saturday, The Washington Post published an article about Republican leaders scrambling to shore up their chances to win back the House and Senate. We've talked about the fundraising struggles uh, and the chaos at the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Uh, one strategist called it a buzzkill. After keeping up with Democrats in donations under $200 through January, the Republican House and Senate saw their small dollar donations fall just as Democratic numbers started rising. In June and July, Democrats in the House and Senate raised more than twice as much Republican as Republicans in uh, small dollar donations. Their fundraising numbers are still bad uh, for Republicans uh, with the uphill battle Democrats would have in these elections. How much of an impact do you think this discrepancy is going to have, Eric? 
I'm not going to say money is overrated, but I think that, um, you know, I think given the national mood, which, you know, is sort of ping-ponging around, you know, look, Republicans are mostly going to have enough money. Democrats are mostly going to have enough money. There's going to be a lot of money on outside spending on the super PAC side. You know, one thing it does show, I guess, is sort of grassroots enthusiasm. I'm working on a, I'm working on a couple swing, you know, swingy races right now. Um, and, you know, one thing we have seen over the last, uh, I guess, few months is a narrowing of the enthusiasm gap. And we see it in public polling. We see it in private polling that there are Democrat, that Democrats are sort of reengaged post row, post uh, uh, IRA, sort of Biden getting some of his wings back. Um, you know, there's been sort of a vibe shift amongst Democratic voters and people are sort of engaged. And, you know, one of the things that we've talked about you know, in elections is going from, um, you know, going from a referendum to a choice and Democrats for a long time, for the last, you know, 16 months, um, it was going to be a referendum on Biden and Democrats. Uh, one of the things that happened with, with Roe being overturned is it became a pretty stark choice actually. Um, and Democrats started putting things up for votes, contraception, codifying Roe, codifying same-sex marriage, um, and it's giving Democrats a chance to play offense um, in some of these culture war stuff that, um, you know, haven't been able to for a long time. And that fires people up in a way that, you know, legislation, uh, as important <laughs> as it is, and it's the way we, you know, govern and rule our country, um, just doesn't do. And, you know, this, this narrowing of the enthusiasm gap means you go from, uh, you know, holy crap, it's a red wave to, well, actually, let's let's think about this for a second, because we're getting close to the point in the generic ballot where um, candidates matter, where campaigns matter, and where it's not just, you know, we're not just throwing sort of generic Republican onto the field, um, and sheer he is just wiping out whatever Democrats out there. Um, I You know, Democrats have a fighting chance now, and I think that you know, like I said, the the enthusiasm gap and the small dollar, dollar stuff, less less matters more for like, oh, are we going to get ads up on TV? And more like, oh, people are fired up and engaged in what's going on. One problem on the money front, though, this cycle is that that enthusiasm came late. And that means the money is coming late on the Dem side, especially at the institutional level. And that makes message discipline hard. And I think that can also make people misread the tea leaves. And it means that you're seeing a lot of campaign messages that are kind of like throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. And so I think that some of these issues, clearly abortion is actually a very challenging issue to message on the right way to build a broader coalition of folks. I think people make the mistake of thinking it's easy um, and it's not. And so the money coming late you know, creates the opportunity for unforced errors that that hopefully can be avoided. Well, one of the one of the central reasons why everything is tightening, why the midterms of are, are are tightening up now, is because the number one issue that has been the in inflation is beginning to subside. The way voters feel about it is changing. Um, Biden's Gallup approval rating is up to forty four percent from thirty eight percent earlier this summer. That's also helping. Um, gas prices are down more than a dollar since their peak in June. Um, Steve Moore has a, he's a former economic advisor to Trump said that he has been advising Republicans to expand their messaging beyond inflation. He said, uh, quote, this is one of the things I'm telling Republicans. Yes, inflation is high, but it's coming down. Inflation is not going to be like it was in March and April with huge increases. I think it's broadening. I think, and I think broadening the message is going to be necessary. So, um, and there's this August Quinnipiac poll, 29% of independents 
rated inflation as the most urgent issue facing the country. And that's down from 41% in July. Um, Biden's approval of how he's handling the, handling the economy has also improved. Um, and so now we're seeing that play out in Republican ads, right? It used to be uh, gas prices were, were 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 basically the big the the, the big attack vector. Um, now only one in a hundred ads uh, in early September are talking about gas prices. So, so it's natural, right? That we're now late in the game. The the key issue has subsided. So, Lucy, I wonder what you think um, with all the focus on the Dobbs decision, right? On uh, from Democratic campaigns. What should we expect expect to replace inflation as uh, the Republican message heading into the fall? That's a good question. I mean, I think that because we're in kind of a culture wars moment where Democrats are looking to use the wake of Dobbs as an opportunity to show uh, to show voters that that really they are the party that aligns with how they feel. I think you might see Republicans try to grab their own version of those kinds of cultural alignment issues on economic issues, right? On the idea of of what 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 do we want our federal government to be doing and and uh you know the the kind of uh almost like a throwback but the idea that Democrats think that they can just uh, tax and spend their way out of anything. I don't think there's a lot of stickiness to that, but I think that that's a way all of the, the, I've said before the idea that one of the problems in this political moment is that all of the turnout is happening at the polls, P O L E S, right? That's changing now. I think Democrats have a real opportunity to, to turn people out at the center. Republicans, don't have that opportunity unless Democrats message in a way that is so crazy, which they sometimes do because they're really good at sounding like aliens. But Republicans, I think you will continue to see in many cases, Republicans doubling down on conservative messages. Of course, there are times where they're trying to move away from that. I mean, there was a GOP ad coming out of Nevada where they're literally like, promoting the idea that abortion will still remain a right in Nevada. Like they're they're giving away that they're all actually also secretly pro-choice, I guess. <laughs> um it's weird. It's so it's so weird. <laughs> Lindsey Graham didn't help that yesterday too with his with his no, introduction. And, and that, Blake Masters yeah. yeah and Blake Masters own spokesperson like retweeted an article about Lindsey Graham introducing that bill that would be a federal abortion ban after 15 weeks. And he tweeted like, why, 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 why? Right. And he later deleted the tweet, but he tweeted that because he's in Arizona in a battleground state where he sees that Masters is trying to pivot away from the abortion issue. I do think I've said this before, but it's worth saying again, I do think that Democrats are still in danger of misreading the tea leaves on the post-Dobbs landscape. And I said this when the Kansas, um, after the Kansas election, where, I mean, Kansas, right, basically referendum on the threat to abortion laws, there's a difference between something that the Cook Political Report highlighted in some analysis of like the post-Dobbs landscape is that it wasn't necessarily the Dobbs decision that has activated people. It's the, these trigger laws going into effect. So I, I think that the, the biggest piece of advice I would give 
to Democratic strategists, people trying to elect Democrats this November, is that there's a real distinction between being a person who's motivated at the polls by being pro-choice and being motivated because you're anti-anti-choice. And so when I talk about the way that Democrats sometimes talk to people like aliens, sometimes Democrats on this issue are messaging with a kind of enthusiasm about abortion that is alienating to people. And they also are doing their very, very typical thing of like trying to sort of uh, make sure that if you're in our camp, you actually also have to go to, through a purity test where we have to make sure that you pass all of our Democratic Party litmus tests. What I keep trying to say to, because I try to help Democrats get elected at this season of my life, is just let those people hang with you and you don't need to keep having the conversation, right? They don't, they don't need to be indoctrinated, right? They're anti anti choice, <laughs> but that's different than becoming people who are going to be out marching with you. I don't know. Food for thought. <laughs> yeah. Eric, what do you think about that? I mean, uh, you know, I am very anti-purity test. The Democratic Party has always been its most successful when we're a big tent. Um, you know, right now we are the party of Joe Manchin and, uh, uh, you know, AOC. Uh, <laughs> they exist within the same party. Um, and, uh, you know, we're not Europe. We don't have like, you know, 35 different parties and little coalitions. One can, um, so yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Wouldn't it be nice if we did? (laughs) Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, this is not the time for purity tests. This is not the time, um, for sort of like a democratic circular firing squad. Um, you know, I think that, you know, this, the, the data and the sort of stuff that we've seen in, in some of the you know, some of the swing districts I've been working in um, just shows that like there is this like this, this, like I said, the enthusiasm is coming back. Um, if Democrats can make this midterm turnout look less like midterm turnout and look more like general election turnout, um, obviously we're never going to touch a general election turnout. But if we can draw in people who don't normally vote in midterms and these aren't you know, these aren't just like young voters. They're basically just like semi-infrequent voters. If we can find ways to activate them, if we can find ways to engage them and energize them, um, then I think, you know, this fall becomes more of a toss-up. And, you know, House aside, um, you know, Republicans picked a bunch of real crazy people to run for Senate um, against a bunch of really good Democrats. Um, You know, Mark Kelly against Blake Masters. Like, I'll take that. I'll take that race anytime. Uh, Val Demings against Rubio, you know, Rubio's tough. Florida's a funny, weird state and, you know, but, you know, it's not impossible. And Val Demings is a great candidate. Um, Beasley in North Carolina, a really good candidate. Um, Republicans last night picked like a crazy person in New Hampshire to run against Maggie Hassan. Like that becomes, uh, uh, you know, maybe not a, you know, maybe not a complete crazy person, but it's, it's, it's not, it's, you know, picked, picked a not great candidate. Um, against her, that race becomes tougher now. Uh, Laxalt in Nevada, um, you know, Nevada is always within 10,000 votes, no matter who it is, whether it's Harry Reid or whatever. Um, uh, I did the Senate race out there in 2012. It's a very interesting and funny state. Um, but, you know, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, really good candidate. Laxalt, kind of extreme for the state. Um, you know, just, you know, this is when, you know, in in a, in a national environment that is moving away from, like I said, generic Republican is just wiping the face of, of Democrats. Campaigns and candidates matter, and Democrats have a lot of really good candidates. Warnock in Georgia, 
um, is just, he's just a phenomenal talent. He's so good. And Herschel Walker is, you know, just not a great candidate, says a lot of really weird stuff is, you know, he's very hard to keep on message clearly. Um, again, in a state with, you know, razor thin margins, you know, Warnock being um, a good candidate um, matters just so much. Um, and, you know, it's, it's easy, it's easy to forget, but he, he beat, um, he won his race in the runoff. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it was close, but it wasn't that close. Ossoff was, was, was closer. Um, he is just a phenomenal candidate and, you know, Democrats are lucky that in a, you know, a, maybe in a, in a tougher, uh, national environment that we've got really, really good Senate candidates. Yes, really, really good Senate candidates. And since you went to New Hampshire, Baldock just won. It was a close race. And I, sorry, I can't help myself, but Democrats spent $3.2 million helping to elect him when he couldn't cobble together enough money to put an ad on TV himself. Full stop. This is, um, uh, this, this mm, gets under my skin every time it comes up. And I just can't stomach the cynicism of the leader of the party and the free world, the president of the United States making a, like a, a convincing case that MAGA Republicans are an existential threat to the future of the American experiment. While at the same time, the same party is now propping up the people who are trying to do uh, exactly what Trump did. Like it just, it just makes my head explode. And I, I, I like, I think, and nope, this is not going to be the top issue for voters in the midterms, but any swing voter who's paying attention to this would be right to question whether or not the Democratic Party means what it says about democracy. Okay, I'm done. Rolling the dice. They're rolling the dice. They're rolling the dice on democracy in favor of party power. They did it in Arizona with Carrie Lake. They did it. I mean, they're doing it all over the place. I want to see, this is what I say to people who are, defending this. I want to see the Venn diagram of people who say that it's acceptable that Democrats did this, Democrats who say this is okay with them now. And and that population in a Venn diagram with people who say that we should be concerned about about money and politics, and in particular, uh, uh, independent expenditures, like Citizens United, all of that stuff. Because I bet it actually would be an almost perfect circle (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you can't be both of those things. You just can't. And there are ways to let voters show you who they are. For example, boosting third-party candidates who are really crazy, right? Who are who help kind of peel off bits of that's giving voters a chance to say who they are. Yes, all of these voters in the state did go and vote for those people. Mm-hmm. That's Republicans true. picked these people. But that is I undeniable. That- like yeah, they voted for no him. question. It's Democrats didn't hold the gun right. to their head. I acknowledge that. But I've had a lot of arguments about this with people. And it's very troubling because they're doing this in states where it's not a sure right. thing. It's just not. And they're also doing it in, in states where the Democratic candidate is horrible, right? So for like we talked about the Masters Kelly race. Yes, take Mark Kelly over that race 100% of the time. Mark Kelly is going to wipe the floor with like Masters. And should. Katie Hobbs and should. Katie Hobbs is not going to wipe the floor with Carrie Lake. And and Democrats helped make sure that Carrie Lake was the nominee in Arizona. Katie Hobbs 
is a terrible candidate who spent most of her primary using her operation, which, by the way, is a disaster, and it, it, like was busy trying to do damage control over her uh, having to pay out in-state funds a discrimination lawsuit uh, like about a young Black woman who worked for her. And now, and also slandering the reputation of the very credible uh, young Hispanic candidate who was her primary opponent. Those aren't Democratic values, last I checked. And now that we're in the general election, Katie Hobbs is busy refusing to debate. She's refusing to debate Carrie Lake, which is like the most Trumpian thing you could do. So it's if you're going to play this game, which I really disapprove of, then pick your races right then, too, like, because they're doing these things, and then they're leaving the field to these just sort of like shit shows. Yeah, <laughs> Eric, what's going on within the Democratic like ecosystem of consultants? Because the way I read it, it's split. There's some like there's some serious there's some you know very very smart people who are like, what are you doing? And then there's some other people who are like, eh, the outcome's what matters. It's just tactics, like. Yeah, I, so I mean, I think you know, I've gone back and forth on this. You know, I think at the end of the day. Um, you know, by making elections more winnable, it puts Democrats in position to actually uh, retain and hold power. Um, you know, Republican voters um, clearly like, you know, this sort of brand of of crazy. And, you know, no one, you know, running some, ad, you know, some of this is also like a little overblown. Some of it's like $100,000 in digital ads. It's very rarely to the point where as in New Hampshire, you've got, you know, we're actually like getting somebody up on television. Um, most of the time, it's like, it's not that impactful. And as Democrats, it's, it's, it's fun to sort of think of like, oh, you know, we can dictate who Republicans are electing in these primaries. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, the little boost helps, but oftentimes I think it's mostly just like a, a boogeyman and it's, you know, a lot of establishment Republicans who, you know, yearn for the party of George H.W. Bush and uh, George W. Bush and, 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 you know, time gone by. But, you know, the party is Donald Trump, J.D. Vance, Blake Masters. Uh, that's like who this party is right now. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're almost all going to vote against Democratic initiatives and values. They're almost all going to vote, you know, heaven forbid, if Trump became president again, they're all going to vote for him. They're all going to bend the knee. They're all going to, like, show up to the Oval Office and fawn over him. You know, every Republican likes to think they're going to be different and maybe privately off the record to Politico, they say otherwise. Um, but, you know, they're all going to, you know, eventually uh, you know, be, you know, sort of succumb to him. Um, so I just have a hard time, like, you know, really thinking that like the, the, the end outcomes are, are that different when, you know, how many Republicans voted to overturn the election after their house of their, their, their place of work was assaulted and people died, right? Like, you know, this is just who the Republican party is now. And, you know, we need more Democrats in office and, uh, you know, I think the the positive outweighs the negative here. I, I am I am sympathetic to aggressive tactics and even choosing your opponent. And I could make a strong case for using that approach in other races at other times and with other uh, with other messages. The problem I have with this one is that that idea that the ends justify the means, that power is the only thing that matters, is exactly the idea that twenty twenty was fought over 
uh, and is exactly the idea that we needed to repudiate and 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 giving it more oxygen in the form of of funding these candidates is uh, is I think a, even if they don't win, even when they don't win, um, propping them up and and sort of inflaming the the worst components of the Republican Party, the worst. Uh, the worst aspect of uh, of MAGAism, um, I think, does the country a disservice, and uh, and I and I think you don't get to do that when you're when you're trying to be the party of democracy and and um, and uh, and and saving the republic from you know certain fate. I don't think you get to use that as a reason to. Um, you know, if you you have to be with me on on this laundry list of democratic policy initiatives, if you believe that 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 MAGA Republicans are an existential threat to the country, uh, to our democracy, that's that's a disingenuous argument. It's very cynical. That's the problem I have with it. I just think at the end of the day, the dif- the difference between establishment and Republican MAGA candidates is just not. There's just like almost no daylight there. Maybe in maybe in tweets. In statements, but not in votes. Well, there is one really big, important difference, which is whether or not on that fateful day in 2025, they're going to be a Republican who does not actively participate in subverting the election. And I can tell you in Arizona, to stay with the Katie Hobbs, Carrie Lake example, I believe Karen Taylor Robeson is a person who could be trusted to certify the election for Joe Biden. I feel very certain that Carrie Lake is not. Right. So I think those are I feel very confident that Peter Meyer, whom who many of his policies I didn't agree with, a Republican from Michigan, that Peter Meyer, who both voted to certify the election, didn't do everything right, was a little weird on the January 6th committee, but voted to impeach Trump. I feel confident that Peter Meyer would have voted to certify the election in 2025. I hope that Hillary Shulton the Democratic candidate in that race prevails. But I also know that the Republican who defeated Peter Meyer in that in that primary definitely will not <laughs> participate in upholding our democratic norms. So even though I don't vote for Republicans anymore, I hope the party burns itself to the ground. I think it's a dumpster fire. I hate it. I think it's an existential threat to democracy. There are still a few small, albeit small, but universe of Republicans who are on the on the right side on those issues and Democrats are doing everything they can to stomp them out. And they're not doing enough to offer a viable alternative as a party to people to also then create an accompanying f- flood and departure from the Republican Party. So even if you take a very, very cynical like game, which is like, this is how we get the Republican Party to be burned to the ground, it's not true. It's not happening fast enough. And it's not happening because of these, these moves. That's just, it's why I share Ron's concern. On Sunday, the New York Times published a story about the private schools in Hasidic enclaves in New York that have received a billion dollars in public funding over the last four years, but are unaccountable to outside oversight and haven't been able to educate students. So the report was a culmination of more than a year-long investigation involving interviews with over 275 people, translating dozens of Yiddish language documents, and analyzing data on private schools in Hasidic communities. The report has gotten a ton of attention the last week. Um, They found that 
nine of the 12 Hasidic boys' schools had no students at grade level in reading or math in 2019. Overall, 99% of the thousands of students at these schools uh, who took the exam failed. Girls' schools fared better, with the majority of schools having at least 20% of students at grade level in reading and math, and most of those schools passed between 20 to 30% of students. That compares to one public school where a large majority of students are economically disadvantaged, and it's worth noting that many of those public schools have less than 30% of students at grade level in reading or math, but still exponentially higher than students at yeshivas. Uh, the pass rate was also significantly higher in schools that overwhelmingly enroll non-native English speakers. Um, and the average pass rate for all schools was 49%. The Times reported that girls in Hasidic schools receive more secular education because they spend less time studying religious texts. And most of the boys' schools offer reading and math four days a week, often for 90 minutes a day, and only for students between the ages of 8 and 12. And one of the school even one of the, one school even bans reading books in English. Um, nearly three dozen current and former teachers across the state's Hasidic yeshivas said most of the boys who passed through their classrooms over the years uh, left school without learning to speak English fluently, let alone read or write. Um, and one of the primary critiques of this article that I've seen is that while the average pass rate is still below fifty percent, so most NYC schools uh, aren't aren't teaching their students to read and do math at grade level. Um, the report also included accusations of corporal punishment. More than 35 uh, men who attended or worked at Hasidic school in the past decade told the Times they saw teachers hit students with rulers, belts, and sticks. And one recent graduate of a school in Williamsburg said he saw uh, a teacher knock a classmate to the ground and stomp him repeatedly. In 2019, a 10-year-old at a yeshiva called 911 and said a rabbi had jumped on him and had beaten him, according to a police record. Uh, the report said that within moments, the principal got on the phone and said the boy hadn't been beaten. Despite that, authorities responded to the call and the boy ended up leaving in an ambulance. The state law does allow for corporal punishment in private schools, which I was a thing I learned <laughs> looking, looking at this story. Uh, but there aren't really clear rules about when and how it can be used. Um, Dozens of men described problems they faced trying to get jobs after graduating uh, from yeshivas. Some said they remained in the community and supported their families through welfare programs. Several said the only job they could get was at the yeshiva they attended. One parent told the Times, quote, my biggest fear is that my sons are going to get engaged, get married, start having kids, and the cycle just repeats itself, end quote. So, I don't live in New York. This was the front page. Like it took up about 70% of the, of the cover on the 9-11 edition of the New York Times. Um, and it, the, the thing that I want to dig into here, because it's just a head scratcher for me, is the politics of this. Because it seemed like uh, there was a just a, a vacuum of commentary from... Uh, from elected leaders in New York, uh, particularly the governor. Maybe some of that has changed now in the days since. Um, but Eric, can you untangle this for us and explain the, 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 the way this story and the phenomenon has its own sort of rules of physics politically and, and the way New York um, politicos sort of dance, engage with it, don't engage with the dance. It's just weird. Uh, I don't understand it. 
Ooh, okay. Um, so, uh, you're asking me to do something that is probably damn near impossible. Well, I will, I will do my best. Um, you know, the times has, you know, start with the times that the, the, the two reporters, Eliza Shapiro, um, uh, is a longtime education reporter in New York city. Um, I believe she grew up here. Um, you know, she knows the education system through and through, um, Brian Rosenthal, who was the education, I'm sorry, who's the, one of their lead investigative reporters, um, someone who's covered, you know, government, you know, malfeasance and, uh, you know, with that at the MTA or subway system and all sorts of other stuff. Um, you know, they've been working, but there's been, there's been rumors about this story and I've known about this story probably since about January, um, which means they probably have been working on it since like last November. Um, so you're looking at the New York times dedicating the New York times, right? This is the, you know, the, this is a, this is a, a real newspaper, uh, dedicating, 10 months of time, resources, you know, something like 275 interviews, um, I think is what they said, um, to, to report out this story. And it's landed with, um, you know, a lot of, of interest and a lot of, I don't know if interest is necessarily the right word, but a lot of, um, it's something that like a lot of people are talking about here. And, you know, it's, it's funny because a few, a few months ago, someone asked me what, um, asked me to talk, talk about New York's 10th congressional district. That was the, that was the race with, um, you know, Mondaire Jones and Goldman and all them. And I said, New York 10 is kind of like the Balkans of New York. You've got, uh, you know, the East Village, you've got Tribeca, you've got Chinatown, you've got two Chinatowns, you've got Park Slope, and then you have this sort of enclave of Hasidic voters in in Borough Park and some of these other places. Um, and so each sort of neighborhood in New York has its own power base, own sort of political, um, you know, operators. It's very, it's, it's unlike, I do races all over the country, but the races in New York city tend to be like some of the most interesting because it's this, it's almost like I, I, I said, I did the Hungarian election. It's like, there's like probably like a sect of voters who are like Hungarian in this district too. Um, it's very, very neighborhood based. It's very, uh, and each neighborhood, like I said, has its own sort of like power structure. Um, and within those power structures, you have, you know, leaders, uh, people who help, uh, you know, um, get people elected. And, you know, we have so many different layers of government here too. We've got, you know, 53 city council members and assembly. We have district leaders within the assembly that have within these assembly districts that have like weird powers. So like, just, that's just sort of, sort of to set up that like, there's like multiple layers of like all of this that comes together when we're talking about a story of this size and, you know, everybody is, everybody's talking about it. And I think that, you know, you know, I think that, uh, it's, it's a very complicated story to unpackage. There's obviously a lot here. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the consensus is I think that we've seen over the past, you know, couple of days, from you know leaders within the various communities, political leaders, religious leaders, is that there is this notion that um, you know government you know should make sure that you know standards are being met, um, and that you know where there are shortcomings, um, that like we you know help you know guide them through. 
Um, you know, one of the things that people are very worried about here, rightfully so, is with, you know, sort of anti-Semitic attacks up um, in the city that, you know, this conversation has, um, you know, can very easily in some instances veer, um, you know, veer towards that too with, with, with people. Um, and so it's, it is this very delicate, you know, political education, religious uh, debate. And it's not, it's just starting. Um, it's really just starting. And the Times is still, you know, clearly working on the story. They've popped out. I think they popped out another story today. They did one yesterday. Um, this is not something that's, that's going away. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that there's a, 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 a recognition that, you know, that things, you know, need to change, that people need to be, have their educational needs met. Um, and I think a lot of the com- next bits of this conversation are going to be, how do we, how do we get there? And how do, you know, who are the leaders who help us get there? Um, whether it's, you know, the state, the city, the hyper-local level, um, you know, education leaders, et cetera. Lucy, I want to I want to go to policy in a, in a second because I'm really curious about how this fits into your broader view of education policy because you spend a lot of time thinking about that. But first, Eric, can you help us understand like how important is the is the Hasidic community politically in elections in New York? Do they vote as a block? Who do they vote for? How does that power that horse race trading work? Um, and I suspect that has a lot to do with the you know with the lack of um, engagement, at least immediately from, you know, like the governor, the man, you know I mean? How does that work? Well, I mean, like, yeah, like, like it's, 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 it's not a monolithic community by any means. Um, you know, they, there is, um, so I don't, I definitely don't want to paint. Um, I don't want to paint them with a, with a broad brush. Um, I think that there is this notion, um, that, uh, you know, there is this sort of like, you know, uh, that the, it's a block, they vote together and that's just how it is. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the past bunch of elections, you know, these election districts are just as conflicted as, as others. Um, and they vote for Democrats, they vote for Republicans. Um, there's a, there's a, a big independent voter, you know, in New York, we have the, 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 if you're not a Democrat, not a Republican, you can't vote in the primary. Um, so there's a lot of people who are Democrats who vote in the primary and maybe vote for Republicans in the general. Um, you know, there's, there's, a a, a growing sort of like more progressive wing of, in some of these neighborhoods, but there's also a Trump wing. Um, so it, it's, it's not, it's not as, it's not a, a situation where, um, you know, it's just like, oh, they vote this way. Oh, they vote that way. It's, it's a very, it's a very complicated, you know, voter base. And no, I don't think, you know, I can't think of the last time that anyone just sort of like wins the neighborhood and that's sort of that. All right. So Lucy, you've, uh, talked before about how your work on education policy is one of the things like you, you think about the most about how to fix. And I wonder how this story fit into that wider view of education shortfalls for you. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of questions that this brings up, right? What do we, what kind of country do we want to live in as it relates to what kind of educational access we guarantee to children? And what do we do? (laughs) What is, what is the role of government and elected leaders and local elected leaders and community leaders in, uh, overruling in some cases 
family or cultural preferences around what kind of education their child should have, how much do we or don't we trust parents to make these decisions for their children? Um, Those are really, really complicated questions that I don't have great answers for because it is complicated. But there's a real balance between giving maximizing choice in education and then ensuring that people are prepared for a life in the workforce and in communities. And there's a cynical take. I mean, some of that is just moral. There's a, a cynical take, which is also like, because otherwise we will be paying for them down the line, right? And it will be a drain. But then there's also this moral piece of the desire to give people access to the American dream, which kind of depends upon having a good start early and having access to a high quality education. It reminds me- Or or a baseline education. Yeah. Reading and writing and math, right? Like, <laughs> right. yeah. It reminds me, it's a different context, but it reminds me, I think, of what's happening in, in a lot of uh, conservative states around school choice, around vouchers, um, around education savings accounts, and the fact that increasingly, I mean, recently, many, many states have implemented programs, and, and I was involved in early drafting of some of these programs um, that were intended to maximize choice for families, especially families with unique situations, special needs families, um, you know, families that wanted to make a different choice for their kids for a variety of reasons, including actually in some cases um, special eligibility for uh, low-income families, to have access to programs that would allow families to choose to send their child to a private school and have that subsidized by taxpayers. But in many cases, in many of these states, and I've told you this before, Ron, and I think I've said it on the podcast, this is a thing that really haunts me, many of these programs have zero accountability written into them, which means that functionally you have situations throughout the country and there are not, we've never seen stories like this of this kind of culture of abuse and that sort of thing. But you have places all over the country outside of New York where in particular taxpayer dollars are being funneled to prop up what I can pretty much assure you are incredibly shitty Christian parochial schools where we have no idea if that education is leading to better readiness among the children or just even a comparable baseline amount of readiness. So while it's not directly related, I think it is, you know, children can't choose for themselves. It's hard to be sophisticated about what is the right educational path for your child. And also we might at some point decide that we would overrule you know, in our communities, parents who are choosing an educational uh, path for their child that is going to result in poor outcomes. But it, it, of course, as Eric alludes to, it involves people's religion uh, often. It gets very dicey. And and I, I hope that this story in New York will open up a broader conversation about what these relationships should be like between between these disparate of communities because the, the faith overlap, the education overlap, local elected leaders. I guess, sorry to say, but it's it's just reminds me of how it's really complicated. Yeah. 
Policy is hard. Policy is hard. There's your <laughs> hard policy is hard. <laughs> who I knew mean, it could be this hard? <laughs> <laughs> who knew it could be this hard? But certainly, cer- certainly, you you will read this story, and I encourage everybody to go read this story. Um, coming away with uh, just a, a real. I mean, if you're if you're thoughtful about it, there's a there's a lot of real tough questions that this brings up that there where there are no easy answers, but certainly, um, you know, at some point the state has an interest in, in in ensuring that some level of proficiency in basic, um, you know, skills required to function in society, uh, happen. And I think, I think that's probably where the conversation goes, but Eric, I wonder what you expect to come next politically out of this, as you said, this has been you know a long time in the making. Story just dropped; they're continuing to drop some more. I think that I saw a couple of headlines about political leaders are beginning to engage or comment that you know we need to do something. Um, how big will the something be? How, you know how how do you expect this to unfold politically? I don't know. I, I mean, the answer the 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 the, the answer is I don't know. Um, you know, I think you know. You know, we're gonna see um, that it's just it's 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 we're it's it's uncharted territory, um, and you know, like I said, I think a lot of this is gonna be in uh, you know in conjunction with working with this, working with the working with the community, working with leaders in the community and advocates. Um, you know, I think that um, you know we're only just you know like we said we're only just starting to see you know, what this debate and what this conversation is going to look like and what the end policy uh, prescription is, is sort of yet to be seen. All right. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's look briefly at what you're watching. Lucy, what do you have for us? There's a story that is out of Louisiana this week that's not getting nearly enough coverage. It has sort of bubbled up a little bit in some local news coverage. And there's actually a very good rundown of what happened in Reason. And it's a story of a um, uh, ongoing drug uh, drug criminal crime enforcement operation gone wrong um, when a woman who herself was a, uh, a drug addict and had been uh, arrested previously for sort of like small minor drug crimes was offered. She, this is in uh, Alexandria, Louisiana, I think, Louisiana, was offered the opportunity to become an informant. And the informant role would involve her going in, wearing a wire and buying meth from a drug dealer in in a way, in a manner that would then help law enforcement bust this drug dealer. And uh, she went in wearing a wire and was brutally raped. Uh, it's all on audio by the drug dealer. Uh, law enforcement was nearby, but was not bothering uh, listening to it. She was apparently, when you hear the audio, it's like just sickening, but no one came for help. Um, she then came out. Uh, long story short, uh, I think the drug dealer, there was, there was no charge brought, whether maybe there was, it was dropped. There were subsequent drug charges brought against her. Um, so, you know, this is a person who's already clearly suffering as a person who's dealing with drug addiction, tries to take the opportunity from a local law enforcement agency 
to have leniency in her case by agreeing to be an informant against a drug dealer, gets brutally raped, and then subsequently is charged um, and 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 prosecuted for existing drug charges. It's a really gruesome story. It just brings up a lot about corruption among local law enforcement, some good themes about how we treat women, uh, but also just sort of a generally appalling tale of how reckless um, how reckless in general some of these operations are, how reckless they are in how they're treating existing addicts, how reckless they are in not giving a damn about informant safety, how they see these people, I think, really is just a pawns in broader investigation. So she's really a story about humanity. I hope it changes some some law enforcement practices around the country, but definitely wow. one of those for sure, and under the radar, but hugely impactful stories. You're here. Eric, what do you got your eye on? Jackson still doesn't really have water. Um, and, you know, I have uh, a friend down there who is the pastor at the largest um, uh, uh, parish in Jackson, and they're doing incredible work. His name's CJ Reverend CJ Rhodes. Um, they're doing incredible work to try and bring water to people. Um, it's, you know, slowly coming back. Um, you know, Jackson state has their uh, huge football program down there, uh, is talking about how, you know, they're going to have their first game even without, you know, maybe having a lot of running water and you got to bring your own water or something like that. You know, who knows? It'll be like a hundred degrees, but, um, you know, Tate Reeves is up for reelection in 2023. Um, you know, Mississippi, uh, is a weird state. We've, it's sort of like an off, off year election. Um, he was out there today touting that Mississippi is like one of the top 10 States to like build a business, which is like crazy because the group that did it is like, you know, got a hundred thousand dollars from the state or something. And we're, we're having weird, uh, you know, stories about Brett Favre getting, you know, siphoning off welfare money to, um, uh, to build arenas, um, that his daughter was playing volleyball at in Mississippi. Um, so that's a long way of saying Tate Reeves won by four points and about 40,000 votes. And uh, to the to the point about, you know, Democrats competing everywhere, um, you know, that is not a lot. And in a state which still has, you know, crazy repressive voter restrictions, um, it's a state that I'm looking at and I would love to work in the election next year where if Democrats had a good candidate, you know, there is a lot to run on. That is a state that's population has stayed stagnant for about 70 years, um, where most of their economy is extraction, um, where the state capital hasn't had any damn water now for a while. And this is, you know, multiple times. This is, you know, we've seen these sort of crises um, with a good inspirational candidate and a little bit of money. Uh, Tate Reeves is not an invulnerable Republican governor. Um, you know, Christy, and the same goes for Christy Nome, who, although she's probably going to win, she only won by a couple points in her own race a couple years ago. The, a lot of these sort of quote unquote red state governors, uh, you know, don't win by a bunch. DeSantis won by only a few thousand votes. Um, we can talk about Charlie Chris for forever, I'm sure. But like, you know, I'm looking at Mississippi. I'm looking at the fact that there still isn't a ton of water uh, that's coming through for folks. Um, and I'm wondering if, um, you know, looking at Tate Reeves with a good inspirational Democrat who runs a good race, um, 
you know, that's that's a winnable race. All right. Mississippi's next Democratic governor, if you're out there, uh, we will put Eric's cell phone number in the show notes for you. <laughs> Give him a call. Perfect. He loves late night phone calls too, we think. He loves it. He'll, ta- he'll, right, he'll talk to any potential candidate, right? Just call. If you're just thinking about it. I it, it's like you it's like you've known me for 20 years. Before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to talk about whether journalists should hold on to news stories for their books, where can everybody find you on the internet? A, and also, what is your cell phone number, Eric? Uh, not going to give out my cell phone number, but uh, on Twitter, it's at Eric D K O C H. And Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M Caldwell. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.